Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 28, the one about lighting Genesis concerts, the free sound project, and Blade Runner 2049. Let's get on with the show. And welcome everyone to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio podcast, Here is Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much for this introduction. And can I say, it is a real pleasure to spend even more time with a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing and finance podcast and the host of the Roger video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Pascal, episode 28, the weeks are flying by. Do you know what? In lockdown, the days seem to drag, but the weeks seem to fly by. I cannot believe that we've put together 28 episodes of this incredibly uplifting and enjoyable podcast. Absolutely. And do you know how people tend to measure time passing, looking at whether the sunrise or rising or the sun is setting? I just know that it's Friday because we're recording the podcast. That's my measure now, time. <laughs> that is that is our lives summed <laughs> up by, by the lockdown. So, Pascal, let's get straight into our first section, which is in the news. Well, Roger, we begin with the news from Mary Portis, the queen of the high street. Guess what? She has a podcast coming soon. And more than a third of consumers have subscribed to a paid next-day delivery service, such as Amazon Prime, say the Data and Marketing Association. 37% of consumers have joined paid delivery schemes. That's a 9% increase compared to two years ago. Well, Arnold Clark, the new and used car sales group, is to sponsor drama programs throughout the year on Channel 4, including Walter Presents Content. Online influencers should not use photographic filters on posts if they exaggerate the effect of a product being promoted, say the Advertising Standards Authority. Wow. Well, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is stepping down as chief executive to focus his time and energy on his other ventures, which include the Bezos Earth Found and his Blue Origin spaceship company. Listen to this one, Pascal. An ad from Ryanair has been banned by the aforementioned Advertising Standards Authority for misleading consumers about the impact of COVID-19 vaccines. Their Jab and Go ad generated 2,370 complaints, which makes it the ASA's third most complained ad of all time. Mm. Well, Uber Eats is launching its $20 million restaurant relief program as part of a campaign that began with its first ever Super Bowl commercial. A message from Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World. And quality assurance analysts and webinar producers are in the top 10 entry-level jobs that can be done remotely in some organisations that are actually paying over $70,000 per annum salary. Wow. Can I just pick up on the last one, if you don't mind, Roger? Mm, mm. You and I have had many conversations with our, uh, amongst ourselves, with our colleagues and, and clients about you know, the, the intention to produce better and greater webinars. Yes. And here we are, one of the top 10 you know, jobs, probably globally, with a salary starting around the $70,000 mark. 
Ah, I mean, it just goes to show, doesn't it? I mean, uh, I think my my first ever salary was a tenth of that, uh, going going back quite a long time, going back a lot further than I would like to admit. But yeah, when we we discussed webinars a, a couple of shows ago, didn't we? And, and how we should pr- maybe perhaps break the model and reinvent it. And and interestingly enough, I was I was rewriting my own uh, web page yesterday for some of the services that I offer, and I came across the bit that is about workshops, oblique webinars, oblique online classes, whatever you want to call it. And I just couldn't get it into my head what to call it and and just kept coming back to webinars, despite the fact that we were saying before Mm. that maybe we should break away from that. I wanted to talk about Ryanair's advert. Now, I'm a massive fan of trying to align your marketing to popular culture i've always advocated in the fat in the past that you know if a, if a very famous soap star dies in the program or something happens in a soap opera that you might be able to piggyback off that story or something happens in game of thrones or something like that but i think this this example of them being complained about so much just goes to show what a tightrope or a knife edge that could be and how risky it could be unless you get it absolutely right. Because, you know, we don't know that the vaccine's going to open up the world by the summer. We, we, we certainly hope it will, but they are actually basing an ad campaign on have this jab and in the summer you can go to Benidorm, Magaluf, Caribbean, wherever it might be. Dodgy stuff. I think so. And, you know, Ryanair as a brand has a history of tongue-in-cheek advertising often qualified as misleading as well as misinforming. But you're right, it's about context, isn't it? And we are in the context of literally people who are going to have a very you know, unfortunate anniversary of the year of lockdown and restrictions of some sort. And this jab and go, it just, I think, missed the mark completely. Now, I know that people will say, well, at least they're talking about them and this PR and this, this and the other. But, you know, as much as as a number, just, you know, under 2,500 complaints doesn't feel like a lot of complaints, as you mentioned a moment ago, the third most complaint adverts, because usually complaints are in the hundreds, right? And mm-hmm. that's enough for as you mentioned, the Advertising Centre Authority or the BBC or whichever channel to pay attention, we're now in the thousands. So, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do, whether they're going to retract it, they're going to apologise and so on. But, um, yeah, I think this one is a miss for me, Roger. Yeah, and but you know that Michael O'Leary, the, the <laughs> CEO of Ryanair, he'll be in his office somewhere. He'll, he'll close the door and he'll be going, <laughs> you know, laughing his head off because they always get publicity out of bad PR. It's part of their model, isn't it? I'm sure. So we mentioned convenience, I think, of two or three episodes ago. And the first news about this idea of next day delivery and people happy to pay that for that extra bit of service. I just think it's interesting. I think it's a very interesting symptom of uh, trends coming forward where people are happy to pay extra for that additional quality of service or convenience. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of do a blatant plug for my book here, Pascal. <laughs> uh, but I recently sent out some copies of my book to people who uh, very kindly wanted signed copies, some of which were people who live in Europe uh, and people, obviously, who live in the United Kingdom. Now, admittedly, we're going over the Christmas period and admittedly, we're going into the uh, post-Brexit period where you've now got to sign a silly little customs form to say what the package is. But the, the one of the books 
which was going to uh, Montenegro, took seven weeks to get there. Seven weeks. And even one that I posted to the south of the UK took nearly 16 days to get there. And, you know, when you when you think about those timescales, no wonder people want to sign up for these Amazon Prime type deals where you are guaranteeing that you'll get it the following day. Absolutely. So I think it'd be very interesting how all the online retailers behave and follow by offering almost, if you like, different packages of services from whenever <laughs> yes. all the way to, to, to next day. Now, very quickly, I wanted to ask your view about Uber. It's not necessarily the great campaign they're running where they're going to allow small independent restaurants to to essentially survive longer by having access to um, you know funding of sort, donations and the likes. But the choice of Wayne and Garth, fictional characters, um, you know, but also Wayne's world, where I have to assume that you have to be of a certain age to know about Wayne's world. And yeah, this choice. Yeah. Well, what did you make of that? I, I mean, I like the idea. Um, I think that, I mean, in the UK, um, after the first lockdown, we had this government thing called Eat Out to Help Out, which was to, the aim was to try and get people out to eat to, to help sustain local uh, um, hospitality. And on the surface, that was a good idea, but I guess it may have <laughs> contributed mm. to the second wave. But I do applaud the idea of trying to help out those parts of the um, of the economy that have been worst hit by by COVID. So that idea I can see as absolutely fine. Having said that, I do appreciate that quite a lot of people might not know who Wayne and Garth are, um, and and therefore does that does that hobnob the. Um, the actual advertising campaign a bit but then again i think mel if this one's aimed at the super bowl isn't it so maybe the target audience is of the age that will know who those people are so uh personally i would probably have used a little bit more of a more up-to-date um set of characters but who knows it might work yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, maybe they will have the data, I'm guessing, um, Roger, and yeah. maybe indeed the decision makers, you know, those who are going to pay the bill for whatever has been ordered are indeed of our generation uh, because obviously those two characters, I mean, it became the thing where people were singing Wayne's World and Wayne's World and, you know, all the different kind of lines from, from the movie. And what is nice as well about the um, Uber Eats um, campaign is literally where independent restaurant can use their services, but the fee is waived. And this is yeah. part of, um, I'd like to see more examples of that because there are some brands, including Amazon, clearly Jeff can now uh, retire, having had the best year ever after I think nearly 26 years <laughs> in operation. I think 2020 has been a good year for him. So you can now retire and build spaceship and all, all the things. I'm saying this in jest, of course, but I think, yeah, there are some brands like Uber, like Eats and many others who have done very, very well from essentially what is a very difficult period. It's not as if all sectors are doing well. So to find ways within you know, that remit to, to help out, I think it's uh, is helpful. And a better PR campaign, if I may be as blunt as Jab and Go. Absolutely. So let's not shine the spotlight on <laughs> Mr. Jeff Bezos. Let's shine the spotlight on some content. Let's move on to the next section of the show, which is our content spotlights. 
in this section of the show, Pascal and I choose a piece of content that's caught our eye during the week. Now, it could be an article, it could be a podcast, it could be a video. But the, the great thing is that neither of us tell each other what that item is. So it's a nice surprise for us to discuss. So, Pascal, what are you bringing into the spotlight this week? This week, I'm really, really excited because I can't wait to get your reaction about this. So this is an article written by John McCarthy for The Drum. And the article is titled, If You Don't Cast, You're Last, relating to podcasting, which is why on purpose I kept my news by Mary Porter's very short because we're going to spend a lot of time in within this segment to talk about podcasting. Now, this article is looking at what he calls the big tech's podcasting gold rush. He's asking some questions or raising questions by wondering what on earth is happening to the world of podcasting right now. Now, we know and we knew from uh, the uh, data from Ofcom that 2019 had been a good year for podcasting, but last year and this year is increasing the consumption of audio content and needed by extension video content, and of course, increasing the desire of people to become uh, audio producers as uh, we are. But he's asking a number of questions, and I can't wait, as I've said, moment, I'm so excited to get your reaction because you have been a um, kind of long term podcaster compared to me. You've introduced me to the medium. I've always favored video, uh, as you well know. So the article is in three segments, if you will. Three part. The first one is a quick, quick potted history of what's happening in the big brands. Talked about Spotify and Insyncree. Spotify, of course, who bought Anchor.fm and a few other uh, kind of uh, minor tech companies, but also bringing some big names, such as Joe Rogan. It talks about, obviously, Apple iTunes, who's taking a while to react to the threat of new entrants, talking about all sort of other platforms, and also asking the question, can YouTube actually be a player in the world of podcasting? Then is moving to advertising, which is actually at the heart of the conversation, and wondering whether advertising is going to threaten the quality of the medium, because it is, after all, a platform that usually was the escape away from advertising, which normally is a domain of TV and radio. And is asking whether indeed a tech giant will add friction to a medium that was actually freer by introducing paywall or other forms of uh, restricted access. You have to be a member, otherwise you can't listen to anything. So I think that was kind of interesting to uh, to get your view of that in a moment. Then he's interviewing a couple of people. He has the president of iHeart Podcast Network, which I'm sure you're familiar with, who is making some predictions that it's going to settle and the real kind of power and richness of podcasting is around five finding your niche, uh, as you know the term. And he's predicting a vast, vast increase in take-up for specialized cooking shows, travel shows, fiction, or any other untapped niches, which would include regional to local news, around business, sport, politics, and so on. And what the article is actually you know, suggesting is, is it possible that the, the numbers are actually uh, hiding the fact that this is not going to last, and that as ever, as you've heard said before, marketers spoil everything. And are we going to see a moment where it's going to literally, the bubble's going to burst, it's happened before, and podcasting is going to return to its roots, really, which was a medium for uh, that, that was freely accessible for authors, for creators, for producers that were doing things in a more kind of, um, you know, uh, organic way, more natural way, as opposed to the big names putting all the production value behind it. But just to close on this summary of this article, which 
I would encourage people to to read. You know, I want to I pick up this sentence which was about podcasting. Podcasting is a sticky and intimate medium. The sound emanates from the center of your skull. There is literally no way to get closer to someone. And therefore the question is, are the big tech companies about to spoil everything and are we going to see the bubble bursting and we're going to go back to something that is going to be more what it used to be wow pascal lots of questions there and lots of food for thought um do you know let's let's first of all admit that podcasting i agree is probably one of the most intimate um forms of content and that's probably why Clubhouse, which we've talked about quite a bit recently, is is being very successful because audio is one of those main mediums which you can do just about at any time. You know, uh, you can do it whilst you're driving a car, when you're on a plane, when you're on a train. You can do it if you're on the treadmill. You can do it if you're in the bath. You can do it when you're cooking. You can do it when you're cleaning the house. You can always listen to stuff. Whereas, you know, your favoured and uh, video and and i love video as well but there are circumstances when you just can't watch video Mm -hmm. Uh, there are circumstances when you can't read text um, but you can always listen so yes i think that's probably why i've always loved the medium of podcasts on the subject of advertising wow i mean on the face of it i mean mean, i'm a commercial business-minded person advertising is important and as a podcast host, if I had advertising on my podcast, it would be good because I would get revenue in for my business. And we all want to grow our business. We all want to make some revenue. But I've always been one of these people who understands the fine balance between annoying advertising and advertising that sort of doesn't get in the way. And my fear is that we get to the stage where advertising starts to ruin podcasts. You know, a lot of media websites you go on are so littered with pop-up ads and these horrible things. You know, you're trying to read an article and the ad appears right in the middle of the article and you can't move it. It won't disappear. And I want to bloody read this article and I can't. And... What I don't like on podcasts are those adverts which, and now we're going to take a 10-minute break because this podcast is sponsored by blah-de-blah. And if you didn't know, blah-de-blah do this and blah-de-blah do that and blah-blah-blah-blah-blah. And if you sign up for it and you give them the name Roger Edwards, then you'll get 10% off. And this goes on for half an hour and you think, oh, just get on with it. Now, I've been approached by a few people over the years to sponsor the podcast. And that's the sort of advert they've wanted to put in. And I don't want to do that. Now I've missed out on some revenue as a result of that. And that's my personal choice. But I didn't want to subject my listeners to that sort of advertisement. And I actually see that happening on YouTube as well. Mm. You know, it's a video platform. I can tolerate those ads at the start of a video where you you have to watch five seconds and then you can skip it on but when the content creator themselves have been approached by somebody and oh we want to sponsor we're a vpn network and we're they're sponsoring us and vpns and and they actually film it themselves and integrate it within that you can't skip that unless you physically scrub it through and i and that that sort of advertising really annoys me I'm, i'm not knocking them for doing it because it's a way of creating revenue but sometimes there's a fine line between what's tolerable and what isn't so 
I really hope that if we that we can find some happy medium where there is some you know, I start the podcast and say the marketing and finance podcast sponsored by VPN XYZ. The Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast is sponsored by blah blah blah. And if you want a special discount, it's ten percent and that's the end of it. End of story. Not a fifteen minute tirade. So yeah, I think it could be precarious. It could be pre- precarious. And as you say, marketers do tend to ruin everything. So let's hope they don't ruin podcasts. Yeah, and I, and I think for me, it was just the reflection. Again, I've been a l- long-time consumer of audio and only recently a creator. And that, that was what I was looking for. You know, It felt to me always that podcast, particularly in the, in the context of content marketing, was something that felt quite independent, almost like being an indie filmmaker and felt quite entrepreneurial in nature. And suddenly you've got those big techs bringing almost radio station type production in terms of format. And what they're trying to do is almost kind of, you know, fit in a commercial radio way of functioning where indeed your program is forever interrupted with adverts about carpets and and cars and, and whatever. And whilst people will always try to make it, you know, relevant to the to the podcast episode, it's just that, you know, jarring effect of, of that insertion into the flow of a conversation or of an interview which is tricky and I think for me as well is people have to be clear as to why you do podcasting is it actually as a uh, form of marketing and indeed you know value out to the community or is it a chargeable service but I think you need to be clear about this Roger you can't kind of have a whatever a hybrid version where you try and essentially try your luck by having sponsors on a form of content that is really meant to be free of charge and truly be there for brand positioning and lead generation, as opposed to, I don't have an issue if someone says to me, we have a, uh, our own kind of program and it's X pounds or X dollars a month and you have access to it, but that's a service to you that we charge for. And I think that the, the lines are blurred, which I think are, are not particularly, that's not particularly helpful. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So let's hope that it will not happen. Shall I tell you about my content oh, spotlight? Oh, please, yes. Now, Pascal, this is a little bit different. This is a little bit different. I have to admit that I originally had a content spotlight piece in here about LinkedIn. Right. And then yesterday afternoon, I came across this podcast, which absolutely blew my mind. And I just had to put it in to the the uh, content spotlight today. So it's a little bit different. Now, I've, talk, I've, I've had a conversation with you before, and anybody that knows me knows that my, one of my favourite all-time rock bands is Genesis. Genesis. Now, Genesis is a group that's been around since the 1970s. Um, it's the band which Phil Collins, who is a massively, massively um, influential pop star in his own right, he started off as, as their drummer before he went global as an as a, as a solo artist. And Genesis have just been around for a long, long time, you know, getting on for 50 years now. I guess their music is is described as prog rock, so it, it's not to everybody's cup of tea. Or, admittedly, in the later years when it was mainly Phil Collins and the and the, and the last two remaining um, band members, they they became a little bit more pop orientated. But they, in my opinion, stayed close to their prog rock roots all along. Now, just before, the, probably about this time last year. 
I was absolutely astonished to be told that Genesis were going to tour one more time. Um, and now I never thought this would happen because Phil Collins is actually quite infirm now. He's, he's had a lot of um, problems right. with his back as a result of, you know, 50 years of drumming. Um, but I bought tickets to go and see them at Glasgow. And of course, the pandemic came along and the pandemic has delayed it delayed the um, concerts which were originally going to be in December 2020 they were then delayed to April and we've recently been told that the concerts are going to be delayed until September so I got myself into this place which said actually I'm not sure this concert will actually ever go ahead and then yesterday I came across this podcast, which is actually a BBC, believe it or not, a BBC Sounds and a BBC World Service podcast. Never heard of it before. And the presenter is a guy called Steve Levine, who is a musician, and he's interviewing a guy called Patrick Woodruff. And everybody's listening to this. So we've never heard of Patrick Woodworth, and and why was why were you going on about Genesis so much? Well, this is it. Patrick Woodruff is an expert in lighting. Believe it or not, he designs the light shows for rock concerts, and this guy is absolutely fascinating he's got one of those voices which is just it's just like silk to listen to and he's designed light shows for the rolling stones adele you know modern bands 70s bands you name it he's probably designed the light shows for it and and so in the podcast without even referencing genesis he is it's just a fascinating listen to how intricate and absolutely painstakingly they go through each of the songs in a group set on stage to make sure that the lights are in the right position so that they know where the singer's going to be stood where the guitarist is going to be stood the colors the brightness the luminance the positioning whether the rig's bent that way or tilted this way and on i never realized that any of this was happening and the choreography is just unbelievable. And then he gets into telling the story of how they put together the light show for this forthcoming Genesis concert. And again, he went through how it, it took them like 10 weeks of rehearsals with the band in a bloody great big warehouse with this great big rig, literally going through each song almost like note by note, just like you would go through um, editing a video frame by frame. The the attention to details, utterly astonishing. Uh, so I was getting completely sucked into this podcast and, and almost forgetting it was about my favourite band. I was just absolutely blown away by this, this guy's expertise. But of course, the beauty of this podcast is that we also got little interviews with Mike Rutherford, who's the bassist of Genesis, and Tony Banks, who's the uh, keyboardist. And not not Phil Collins, by the way, he mustn't have been around that day. Uh, but the other thing was, is we were getting little snippets in the background of the band rehearsing and, and, and little, obviously, giveaways as to the songs that they might be playing on this tour and the fact that they've got a 50 year back catalog of songs. Oh my God, they're going to play that. Fabulous. Fabulous. And, uh, and he finished off with the news that 
on the very last couple of days of rehearsals, once they'd nailed all these lights and they got everything absolutely to perfection, they brought in a film crew of 24 cameras and they filmed the entire set as if it was being played live to an audience in a stadium. I think they actually had about two or three husbands and wives and a few janitors and uh, and catering people watching it, but they filmed the whole thing. So just in case the concerts mm. can't eventually go ahead for whatever reason, they will still be able to actually put out a Blu-ray or a video or a DVD of this show. And he says, at least people will be able to see the light show that I've put together for this, which he says is probably one of the best he's ever done so apologies for that little bit of a different uh, angle but honestly pascal one of the most interesting half hours i've heard for in a long time and it just so happened to be talking about my favorite band as well no, absolutely no need to apologize i mean the, the, i've got two or three reactions reaction number one once again i can't believe that even though we don't talk to each other we end up choosing something of a similar nature i talked to you about podcasts and concerns we have about the future podcast and then you talk about one particular audio production that is almost telling us this is what the future may look like or should i say sound like because what i'm what i'm sensing is that layers of information but also different kind of auditory experiences from the um the the, the guest with an incredible voice but snippets of rehearsals then you know talking to uh, other kind of um, peers in the world of uh, sound set and sound design and and i wonder whether that's going to be the evolution where you know people at the moment are keeping they would say the production or the complexity simple because one has to learn you know one's craft but eventually is this is this an example to follow uh, I, I, this is how i'm reacting to it as well this excitement where you know anything is possible with audio i mean Yes, you're right. I favor video, but in terms of um, editing and what you can do with audio, it's so much freer because you don't have the the added, you know, kind of problem of images matching or the kind of jump cuts and that, that kind of things. Uh, and for me, uh, again, as a, a recent recent producer, I've got a feeling that if we learn from the article a moment ago which is yeah maybe the big tech are doing their thing and maybe they may spoil a little bit but pay attention to those independent producers who are finding ways in half an hour to engage you so much that then you have this reaction from roger yeah and and i think the other lesson that i learned from this particular podcast is it was obvious that it had been recorded over many many different times right because obviously some of the interview was done when they were actually in that warehouse doing the rehearsals you could tell that some of it was over zoom or teams or something similar i think there was even a few clips that may have been done almost in person during the the lifting of the lockdown last summer and it just goes to show that i, I guess in my head when i put together a podcast it's always i record an interview with a guest at the beginning at the end and it's done i never think about oh i might just record a little bit of that one day and a little bit and then piece it all together almost more like in a documentary format so mm, it's it's yeah, certainly yeah. got me thinking a, a little bit differently about podcast production as well but you know what's interesting what you just described I would argue perhaps would come more naturally to you and I if it was a video. I can think mm. documentary videos. I can think talking heads. I can think a, a number of ways I can visualize it. 
is it maybe actually because it's much harder to visualize a documentary style audio production yeah. that's not coming to us as directly but there we are you know the consumption are going up everybody that you can think of are launching their podcast to your point roger they're not they are not all going to last that seems to be the trend which you've pointed out to me and is it actually about this year for all of us to be just a bit more adventurous but thinking almost could it be a documentary but let me just strip out the images could it be a concert could it be this and also which again i've never thought of you would produce a video over time over days and weeks and months why should it be any different for audio wow lots to think well about done there, you that Pascal. was it. that was excellent that yeah, love that. So let's move on. We're carrying on. We're talking more. We're talking more tech, but it's marketing and tech and apps next. So let's move into the next section of the show. And in this section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table technology. Could be a website, it could be software, it could be an app, something again that's caught our eye, which will help with our productivity or our creativity. Pascal, Hit me with it. Well, listen, this is pure accident. So I don't want our viewers and listeners to suggest to us that we know what we're doing all the time. But I'm going to continue with audio production. That was just, you know, the way it kind of landed yeah. with um, two websites that can allow you to actually produce and create more interesting audio experiences, whether actually you're doing video for that matter, but also podcast and more. So the first one is one that I'm very fond of. It was one of the early websites I discovered when I was doing my bit as an independent film producer. It's called The Free Sound Project. And as they may indicate, this is essentially a database, a website, a resource where people from around the world are freely donating sound files they have created. Now, some of them are, I would say, natural sounds. So people have gone about and recording the sound of a forest, you know, wind in the trees, rivers, crowns, and more. But also, I've gone as far as creating jingles, uh, music tracks, and so on, and you can use them. They use the Creative Commons licensing, so on occasion, it's freely available. On the, all the time, you have to um, essentially let people know who the author of that sound is in your closing credits. But I think it's a lovely resource, and, and it can allow you to find sounds that are very different to maybe some of the more uh, famous resources online. So here's one to consider. The second one is one that I mentioned, I think, in the early stages of the uh, Two Gigs in Marketing podcast, but I wanted to also mention a particular part of this website. And the website, the address is in the show notes, but it's called digccmixter.org. And this is essentially to find music tracks and songs for your videos and podcast. And the library is enormous, Roger. It's in the thousands of music tracks and, and more. And what is lovely, because it's part of a community, one track sometimes has been edited differently or looped differently by artists and DJs. So you can find different versions of the same. The good thing about this particular facet of the website, dig dot ccmixter.org roger is the search facilities you can search by instruments you can search by style you can also search by language so if for example roger when you're allowed to travel again and you can go to another destination so remind me again whereabouts in eastern europe you've been roger montenegro macedonia 
And here we go. So if you were, I know that you were very fond of Montenegro. So um, let's, you know, be um, positive and hopeful that you can go back. Then when you come back with that amazing footage for your next Rod's Vlog video series, you can actually put, you know, the name of the country to find some tracks with a little hint of that culture, that culture and language. So... I'm a big, big fan of those two platforms, again, to help you with your audio production. But I didn't realize we we're going to talk about audio production so much during the content spotlight, so I'm very pleased about that. <laughs> and, and, and that's all copyright-free as well, is it? It you is copyright-free. Wow. Use it. And like I said, sometimes it's uh, freely available, as in use it uh, um, as as is, and all the times you just have to credit you know, the author during your closing um, credits at the end of a video or the podcast. Yeah, oh, superb. Okay, so my 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 bit of tech this week is is something that I actually forget about quite often. Now I'm a big fan of Twitter. Twitter's always been one of my favourite, if not my my actual favourite, um, social media platforms. And obviously now we can upload video to uh, to Twitter. We can go live on tw video on Twitter, technically through Periscope, but it's still now through the Twitter platform. And actually Periscope is going to be disappearing mm -hmm. in April anyway. And, and, and we can upload photographs and this, that, and the other. And, and most people will upload any videos and photographs just from either their Twitter app on their phone or from the Twitter desktop browser. What I constantly forget about Pascal is that there is also a separate part of the Twitter website which is called Twitter Studio. So instead of typing in twitter.com you actually type in studio.twitter.com and it gives you all sorts of extra things that you can do to manage the media that you are actually posting to Twitter. So I'll give you an example. If I was to upload a video natively, either on my phone or on the normal desktop, I wouldn't be able to do anything like add alt text to it or add subtitles. Now, subtitles are obviously very important. And yeah, technically, you could record a video using a, an app like Clips and physically have the subtitles appear in the actual video but of course the traditional way of adding subtitles to a video is to upload an SRT file uh, with the video so that people can choose whether to have the subtitles actually appear or not they can turn them on or off now if you upload a, a video to Twitter natively you can't add subtitles but if you go into Twitter studio you can actually add the subtitle file and then when people actually see it once it's posted, they'll have the option to turn the, the, the subtitles off. You can also add the alt text. You can also add in calls to action to your tweets as well, like click on the link to my website or click on this link to a photograph or somewhere else. And again, you can't do that on the native desktop or the native app. So it does give you a lot more flexibility. The second part of it, is you actually have access to what is called producer, which is in the Twitter studio. And that gives you a lot more flexibility around going live on Twitter. Now, again, most people will use their phones to go live on Twitter, and that's absolutely fine. But if you want to set up an event and actually have it come up as something that's that's going to happen in the future, scheduled in the future, you can go into Twitter Studio, into the Producer tab, and you can do all of these extra things. Now, 
I, I just keep forgetting about this. And the only reason that I remembered about it yesterday when I was planning uh, what I was going to talk about today is that I had a client who wanted to have subtitles in their, their video. And I'm thinking, oh, how do we do that? Because we haven't, we haven't mm. recorded. Oh, of course, Twitter Studio. And there we are. Now, there is a downside is that some people don't have access to this. And I don't know why. Fortunately, my accounts do, but I have got one client who hasn't got access to it. So again, it must be something to do with either the part of the world you're in, or I don't think it's anything to do with followers or anything like that. It might be to to do with the fact, I think you might have to open a Twitter ad account, even if you yeah, never that's ever... Possible, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it might be. It, even if you never intend to use the ads, I think if you get the ad account then it will give you access to twitter studio but if you want more flexibility to play with the the actual media that you're uploading to twitter then check out twitter studio do you know i forget all the time too and i'm sure viewers and listeners will be thinking me too and <laughs> isn't that amazing that those platforms they do such a bad job really to shout about sometimes their best features i mean that that should be almost making the headlines you know all the time so thank you what's the url again please roger it's just simply studio.twitter.com uh smashing no very very good yeah you know we talk about twitter a lot in the social media news roundup with um my co-host natalie emony and it's that one platform that everyone wants it to do well and and yet, if you look at numbers and everything else, you know, it's it's probably the, the least performing platform. But it's also the one that, unfortunately, is always hijacked by the wrong types of headlines. Unfortunate, but that's great. Thank you very much for you know reminding all of us about as ever. Probably you know what I believe it is probably hidden behind the three dots on the mobile app or something like this because everything on the web uh, that is good uh, for you is always behind three dots, as I've come to discover. Yeah, I love unearthing these things, even if I have known about them all along. Pascal, it's time to fire up the time machine, to press the buttons on the TARDIS console, to enable the flux capacitor, to get the DeLorean zipping down the timeline. Shall we head back in time? And let's do This Week in History. And in 1876, Alexander G. Bell and Alicia Gray apply separately for telephone patents in the U.S. Supreme Court, who eventually rules Bell as a rightful inventor. In 1903, to toy shop owner and inventor Morris Mitchum places two stuffed bears in his shop window, advertising them as teddy bears, after Theodore Roosevelt. And in 1929, St. Valentine's Day massacre takes place in Chicago with seven gangsters killed, allegedly on Al Capone's order, following a bounty on his head by rival George Bugs Moran. In 1931, the original Dracula film starring Bella Lugosi as the titular vampire is released. In 1984, Britain's Jane Torville and Christopher Dean famously dominate the ice dancing at the Sarajevo Winter Olympics, performing to Maurice Ravel's Bolero in a free dance routine, recording nine of nine perfect scores for artistic impression. Remember it well, in 1986, the term of vaporware is first used by Philip Elmer DeWitt in Time magazine article to describe software that has been long announced but has not actually been released. Now this is important. In 1995, astronaut Eileen Collins becomes the first woman to pilot the space shuttle as mission STS-63 gets underway from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. 
And in 2006, MPs in the United Kingdom voted to ban smoking from all pubs and private clubs in England. Wow. Can I just confess to you, Roger, I always believed that teddy bears based after Theodore Roosevelt was made up like some kind of urban legend. Is it actually true? Well... According to the uh, the source for this news item, it absolutely is, and and apparently he asked Theodore Roosevelt's permission to use it, use the te- the teddy bear name. So I'm sort of gathering that it, it probably is. Although oh, well. maybe we'll do some more research and find that it's Ted from down the road in um, <laughs> Clapham or something like that. <laughs> well, I'm, I stand corrected. I'm, I'm really, but um, yeah, your reaction about you know Torville and Dean. I mean. That was a moment, wasn't it, in history? Oh, I mean, the, I can remember it. I'd just just been uh, just gone to university, so it wasn't that cool to be into watching ice skating. Um, but you you could sort of pretend that uh, you'd just accidentally started watching the <laughs> ice skating because it was straight after the bobsleighs or something like that. But I mean, the dance was amazing. It was it was quite um, it was quite erotic if I remember for uh, an Olympic style dance, but the combination of the of the moves, the jumps, the twists, the pirouettes, whatever they call them, but that s- astonishing piece of music, mm, yeah. that probably I mean they chose such an iconic piece of music and they danced absolute to it's a bit like we, i was saying before about the guy choreographing the lighting the way they choreographed their performance to that piece of music was just perfect and for me the the less because after that there was documentaries and you know it was obviously uh, looked into it took them a few years to be accepted as you know essentially inventive performers uh, the judges didn't like uh, the, the style essentially they were breaking molds and breaking barriers and the 1984 was a result of many years of trying and getting low scores because of course they were facing uh, more old-fashioned views about what ice skating should be absolutely right yeah no it's uh, it's one of those memories isn't it again and and, and Torval and Dean are actually still about they're, they're part of this whole dancing on ice phenomenon I must admit I don't watch that my my wife watches it and quite enjoy and quite enjoys it although she always misses out all the gubbins that goes on between the dances but yeah Torval and Dean effectively created an entire career based upon all the effort they put into that one dance and, and the lesson you know which we, we repeat often and through the, the content uh, reviews, it's the idea of, you know, if, if you believe in something and, and you want to express yourself your own way, for a while you're going to have to put up with people who put you down or do not believe in you, but eventually you're going to break through. Can I talk to you about vaporware? I wasn't aware of the term, but I'm very aware of organizations announcing software that never come to light. So, yeah, I'm glad to know this term now. I, I never. Uh, I mean, vaporware to me. I was expecting it to be about you know these um, uh, inhaler type cig- fake cigarette things. I can't even remember. What, I can't even think what they're called. But um, vape vapors or whatever. But yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, as a geek like you are, a gaming geek, one of the uh, one of my favourite early shoot 'em up games, uh, first person shoot 'em up games, was called Duke Nukem, and that was mm. that was launched in the early. 1990s i think it was a little bit after doom uh, and it was almost 10 years that there was this piece of software this new game which was going to be called duke nukem forever and it was constantly being delayed and constantly being delayed it was actually 
released eventually after about 12 years and it was a massive 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 disappointment so sometimes you think it's probably best even if you've told people it's coming if you don't think it's actually going to work just just sweep it under the carpet absolutely finally for me um bella lugusi which i'm i'm glad you um you brought up today it's really quite incredible how we are, you know, soon approaching, you know, hundred years of the original Dracula film being, you know, produced in 1931, and again this lineage, you know, that what it has meant. Because again, without that, would we have movies like Blade or, or, or anything like this? Yeah, it's a really good one, isn't it? Because obviously. Dracula has been interpreted by so many different actors over the years because obviously Bella Lugosi was the first. Uh, Christopher Lee, massively, massively popular Dracula in the 1960s. Um, then most recently, I think um, the, the writers of Sherlock, uh, they reinterpreted it for TV. Mm. Uh, Klaus Bang was, I love that name, Klaus Bang played Dracula. So you can reinterpret the actual character in a movie which is effectively the same story. Or, as you say, you can slightly shift to the side a little bit and reinvent an entire different film genre based upon the tropes from the original Dracula films. So it's almost like a slight reinvention, a reboot, I guess. is Blade is a reboot of Dracula in a mm. way. It's just a, a retelling of the same story. But you can trace the roots back to these original films and, of, yeah, I guess, the of original book. Of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Love it. Love this segment. Some great, great memories from the past there, Pascal. But... I think we should move on because we've got some creators that we need to shout out to the world. In this section, Pascal and I give shout outs to creators, mainly from our personal networks, but sometimes from a little bit outside our personal networks. So, Pascal, who are you giving a shout out to this week? Well, Roger, bear in mind how we started this podcast. I'm going to finish with audio production. Uh, right. in this um, uh, shout out but I must obviously thank Colin Gray for allowing me to discover David Brown who is the the host of the Business Wars Daily which is a podcast series looking at brands who are on, in competition which is born I think of a, a different series where they look into the details and what is really great about this audio series is to bring the production and how they tell a story in no more than four minutes and so this kind of bite-sized inside look into the most co compelling competition stories, you know, some of the brands you can really put side to side, like Pepsi and Coca-Cola and Nintendo and Sega and that kind of thing. So they're looking at this, and what I love about it is that without fail, there's a new bite-sized story every day. Without fail, it's around the four-minute mark, and without fail, it's just produced superbly. Now, that won't surprise you because the team that is behind Business Wars Daily is also the team that is behind the brand Wandery, who have been producing exceptional bits of content, including the Star Wars story and the Joe story. So I can't claim that David Brand is in part of my network, but via Colin, uh, I would say that we are only nowadays, as you know, one or two people away from you know a new connection. But I just wanted to kind of give David Brand a shout out, but also allow people to listen to once again, perhaps be inspired to take their audio production to the next level. 
fantastic Pascal. And I'm not going to talk about audio in this <laughs> section, which uh, probably will make a bit of a change. But this is, you go on quite a lot about Canva. I know you're a big fan of Canva. In fact, we both use Canva for, for our various graphics and, and for anything from presentations to, uh, you know, the, the thumbnail that goes with the podcast and all of those sort of things. Pa- uh, Canva is a phenomenally, phenomenally good piece of kit. Now, Again, it's one of those websites which a lot of us subscribe to, but we probably don't get as much out of it as we can. And there's a lady who I follow on, um, I'm connected with on LinkedIn. She's called Nikki Pasquier, and she has a YouTube channel dedicated to how to do this on Canva. So effectively, Canva how-to videos. And she's done quite a lot of videos now, and it's often just worth popping in from time to time to watch her videos. And they're extremely engaging videos and very well produced and very well edited. But each one of them is a gem on how to use a specific functionality within Canva. Now, it could be using Canva to create the equivalent of a PowerPoint presentation, or it could just be how to animate text and all of that sort of thing. So she really does a fabulous job of making Canva appear simple. Now, that's great because Canva's simple as a, as a concept in the first place, but Nikki's just got that knack of making it sound even simpler. And, and it's almost like a double shout-out, Pascal, because she's built a fairly sizable subscriber base on YouTube. Uh, I can't remember the exact figure. It's about 4,500 subscribers just by doing this. So it just goes to show that if you find a niche that works and you create engaging content and keep coming back and creating more of it consistently, then you're going to grow followers, subscribers, whichever platform you're on. So if you're into Canva, like we are, but you want to just dig a little bit deeper, Nikki Pasquier, look look out for her. And I've included, as always, a link in the show notes to some of her work. Super. Thanks very much, Roger. All right, Pascal, it's time. It's time. The usually the best part of the show for both (laughs) of us. We get to geek out totally. It is film marketing. So, Pascal, this week we're going to talk about a relatively recent film. But before we talk about the relatively recent film, we're once again going to have to go back in time just to tee this up. Do you remember in 1982 that fabulous film called Blade Runner? Oh, my goodness. And you know what I remember, actually, was the radio adverts on on French radio stations and the music by Vangelis. And the... Very much like we mentioned before, the anticipation to go to the movies, to go and see this movie. And then once you can, you see the trailer on TV and so on. But uh, I remember one film critic saying about Blade Runner that was obviously um, created in 1982. This is sci-fi at its best. It is as good as it gets. And, and I think that to me was it, which is this was the ultimate uh, sci-fi movie it had everything that you would want from something that was looking to the future but also had you know good lessons and good morals and some really compelling character primarily obviously played by Harrison Ford yeah and 
At the time, at the time, I think the studios bottled it, didn't they? <laughs> they thought that the visuals are too dark. The storyline might be a little bit too, uh, might need the audience to do a little bit more work than they would normally do. So the studio bottled it. And origin, the original release of the film had a fairly dreadful voiceover um, to explain the plot to people, which, you know, is always a bad sign. Uh, Eventually, they they corrected that by launching uh, a director's cut, which did away with that dreadful voiceover and effectively let the audience do what they should have done and use their intelligence to to uh, fit mm. the plot together. But I guess because of that original version was a little bit ropey, it wasn't an immediate massive box office success. But over the years, it has gained so much more accolades and fans and 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 great feedback and great reviews and yes it is indeed one of the most amazing science fiction films that ever has ever been made i mean the visuals the the representation of that future rain splattered earth that horrible dark dank city you know unbelievable visuals and naturally people wanted a sequel and I think that Blade Runner has been one of those films which we've been pro- we'd been promised a sequel for years and years, and then it was going to happen, and then it wasn't, and then it's going to happen, and then it wasn't, and finally, in 2017, we get the sequel, Blade Runner 2049. Now, the original Blade Runner was set in 2019, and therefore the 30 years has elapsed in real time has elapsed within the film timeline as well. And I think you would agree that the marketing build-up, and I guess the anticipation just from being an original Blade Runner fan for those 30 years, that build-up combined with the marketing build-up really set us up for something truly spectacular. But did it actually fulfill on its promise pascal so we're now talking about blade runner 2049 that's the film that was released a few years back so i want to talk to you about the 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 marketing the lead up and then i'll ask your views and i'll share mine about the the film itself but just reacting as well to your comment about you know the studios lost their nerves about the 1982 version i was thinking my goodness this poor director ridley scott you know how much does he have to do to prove himself and be left alone to to get on with the work because by that time he produced alien and and a few other films but you know we are where we are and so with regard to the Blade Runner 2049, I somehow must have missed that they were thinking about it because my first surprise was to see the teaser posters where they reproduced you know, the calligraphy of the original Blade Runner movie and with the year 2049, I was like, oh my God, what is going on here? And then soon after we had posters which were essentially it was artwork as far as I was concerned. Do you remember the, the very, very first one where you felt you could ha- you could frame this and have it in, in your house or your, your kind of uh, den, den of geekery? Um, so I, I was really excited about the teasers in particular. Absolutely right. I mean, it, it, the vi- let, let's face it, the, the visuals within both Blade Runner films are fabulous. The cinematography was great. The colour, the colour palette, if that's the right word, was amazing. And and the way that that transcribed into the visuals for the marketing, to me, is, is, is one of the best parts of the experience. It's just whether the actual <laughs> ultimate film was, mm. was worth actually waiting for. 
And then you've got the first teaser trailer. So we had it on static images and actually those posters. I would encourage any of you to seek them out online. They are beautiful. Then you've got the teaser trailer. I think it was barely 30 seconds. And it begins with the voice of Descartes, you know, played by Harrison Ford. And with um, and I'm pretty sure it was from the original Blade Runner. And there was just in the background a bit of a sound from the original music. It gave me a good spinple. I was like, oh my <laughs> goodness, you know, this is going to be truly outstanding. And the first signs where the first bits where I got a bit nervous when, when they started to do the new posters, which felt very, very marketing y. I mean, it was yes. felt like it'd been done by someone that just learned to use Photoshop. <laughs> and the trailers, the full version, I was thinking, oh, I'm not so sure about this. I mean, how did you feel when the marketing machine took over? It's, it made me wonder, a bit like you, I thought the original teasers, again, it, you, they're setting up a, a thing of beauty here. And then then they, it was almost like they started to, to dismantle it mm. before we even got to the launch. So it felt to me as if they'd done a fabulous job of teeing up the film initially and the marketing was working and I was getting excited. And then all of a sudden it was almost like they'd given the marketing job to somebody else <laughs> yes, yes. who had a completely different view and a completely different vision. And he started to effectively undo all the emotions and the feelings that I had about the way the film was coming together. No, no, I would agree. And then it carried on. You know, we had, a, I think, a second trailer. We had more of this, more of that. And, you know, even when they did the uh, the rounds, you know, talking on, on chat shows and so on, I was thinking, oh, I just don't know about this. And then the rumor started with regard to Harrison Ford not being in a film that much. And I went, well, hang on a minute, because when you watch the teasers, or when you look at you know the uh, the posters and so on, the impression because of course his voice is used a lot is that the character is obviously will carry on for, with the same character for thirty years. And then I've got nothing against Ryan Gosling, and I think that the character he played of K, another LAPD uh, officer, you know, chasing obviously the um, you know being the replicant, the Blade Runner sort of chasing the replicants. But I started to think on a minute, you know, where, where are we going to get here? Because my hero is Descartes, you know, and I need to know whether or not that I'm going to get that. Yeah, again, when when we eventually did watch the film and, you know, my initial impressions of the film was it did look beautiful uh, and they tried to maintain that sort of, the way the storytelling was quite, um, you know, detailed in close-ups and uh, and the, the way they they use the scenery and the and the, the weather and the the emotion and the and the, and the color schemes and the storytelling is quite, even in the original was quite slow but it was never boring because i thought that it was it needed that detail but it felt labored and i was i kept waiting for harrison ford to appear mm. and you know half an hour goes by where's harrison you know 45 minute goes by where's harrison an hour goes by you know and you think is is harrison actually going to appear other than as a you know in the post credit sequence or something like that and then and then finally he's there and it all seems to wrap up quite quickly and not very satisfactorily so i just felt like i'd been i'd been um bait and switched in some way and that i've been waiting 30 years for something that didn't actually although it looked beautiful it just didn't actually fulfill its promise 
No, you're absolutely right. And you know, I just realized actually that um, only the previous episode, we, we did discuss a sequel. I just realized that that's what we've done purely by accident. Again, viewers and listeners yeah. don't, so don't think that we, we, we are that smart, that we can do things like this. So we spoke about, obviously, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. And mm-hmm. we, obviously, we had a very, very different reaction. Please do go back and watch and listen to this. But for this one, uh, I remember actually I went to the um, Tyneside Cinema in Newcastle upon Tyne with uh, our good friend Richard Tubb to go and see yes. it. Yes. And I remember we actually had lunch in town. We were talking. We were excited. We were reminiscing about Blade Runner, the 1982 version. We sat there, and I'm pretty sure we didn't speak to each other, but I could I could tell. And then when we left, we walked upstairs to they, they have a wonderful restaurant and bar, the Tyneside Cinema, and we just sat there, looked at each other, thinking, oh. Oh, you know, and there's nothing worse as a film fan, film goer, to feel just a little disappointed and down. And sometimes I feel bad for the makers because I know all too well how much effort goes into creating an amazing movie. And and listen, this was nearly three hours of visual spectacle and treat. But we sat there thinking, ah, yeah, hmm. Nah, and uh, and there, there we are. And for me, like you, I was thinking, well, you know, you, you suggested to us as part of the marketing that um, our hero Deca would be with us. And then when he did appear, I do have a thing about this idea of a hero that is brought back into a sequel has changed into a grumpy old man, Roger. And yeah. I, I, need to, I need to kind of challenge that, you know, the way they've done with Luke Skywalker and many other, you know, franchises. I'd like to think that when you and I, you know, are met uh, in the future by other people, we're not going to be grumpy old men, but actually having a great, great life, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting observation. I hadn't really thought about the Luke Skywalker Deckard thing there, but you're absolutely right. And... Uh, uh, again, it, it felt to me as that they try to replicate the strong characters from the original film, but they failed. The visuals, I do think they got right, but mm-hmm. the pacing, they tried to replicate that intricate, painstaking detail of the original, but they didn't quite get that right as well. So that that failed. I think some of the you know the returning characters, like the the, the um, Rachel, was in it to a certain extent as well, and hints to the past. But that didn't quite work, and it just felt as if that they just were going through a. We we need to tick the visuals box. We need to tick the returning characters box, but they didn't really. They didn't think of it as a whole. It was just mm. a series of boxes to tick, no. and that's why it just didn't. It just didn't land. What it what it does make me wonder, Pascal, and again, we 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 do try to focus on the marketing for this is that. If you have something which, I mean, they must have known that it wasn't going to be as good as the original, and but they've got to promote it. They've got to get people to go and sit in the cinema and watch it. Uh, but can you actually genuinely market something which is subpar and then expect people to agree with the marketing thing? Yeah, that was fab. The marketing said it was fab, so it was fab. When, in fact, they know that it's going to be a bit of a dud. You know, do do you not have to? <laughs> some films they'll just okay. We we know it's going to be the, the reviews are going to mm. be rubbish, so we'll just sort of we'll release it straight onto DVD. Maybe it was just the whole impetus for this film was just so great that they couldn't do anything other than try to push it as strongly as they did. I don't know. I mean, to, I'm going to uh, agree with you when you look at the teaser posters and teaser video. It feels like it was an individual or group of individual team that really understood the mythology of Blade Runner and the world. And then the team that took over from there didn't. 
um, perhaps, you know, and they just applied almost, you know, yeah, those colors will do that layout. Uh, it frankly, resembled almost the kind of action films you see, like Fast and Furious and so on, in terms of presenting the, the different characters. But, you know, to your point, though, um, Harrison Ford, the character of Descartes, had his own profile poster, which that's what they do. Now, they split the characters of, of the different story. So they did that, and it was just so, so strange because he was suggesting, therefore, it was almost, in my head, I was, well, he'll basically have a rookie played by Ryan Gosling, and and through essentially the interaction, we're going to discover the world 30 years later, and they're going to explore still this idea of what happens to essentially artificial uh, human beings, you know, the, 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 the um, Forgive the, the replicants. I beg your pardon. Uh, it was Nexus, Nexus Six in the nineteen eighty two version. Are we in, in Nexus? You know, fifteen. Are we upgraded? And they are even more uh, lifelike and human like. And what is obviously, you know, what are we going to explore? Because that was essentially part of the theme. And and I felt that they were not exploring anything new or anything at all. And what was actually also great about the first one is you know the fact that there was a Tyler Corporation, a, Ty a Tyrell Corporation, I think it was uh, the name, and there was therefore you know, a whole organization behind it that they were also uh, up against. And here we had a bit of a bad, a bit of a psychopath that used to kind of uh, you know, talk to himself and um, you know, do a few gruesome things, but I didn't believe in the threat from the corporation, which is also at the heart of uh, the first one. So I think you're right. Really, really can't fault the movie visually. And indeed, I'm told that now that you know what the movie is all about, watching it again on Blu-ray makes it uh, actually a great, enjoyable movie. But first time sat at the movies with uh, my good friend Richard, I, was, I felt that I'd been misinformed slightly and just shortchanged because I think, well, it, it should have been a better story for sure. Yeah, I think the lesson is that, you know, marketing, <laughs> the, the actual communications part of marketing, the, the, the promotion part of marketing, however hard you try, if your product isn't hitting the spot, if you haven't done your job uh, understanding what your customers want and delivering it, then the marketing of the actual product is always going to fail to a certain extent or at least over deliver on something which isn't going to live up to people's expectations. So I think that's probably the first time on Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast that we haven't been hanging from the ceiling with enthusiasm for mm. one of the films that we've reviewed. But I'm not actually apologising for that because I think sometimes you do have to look at the ones that haven't quite hit the mark because you can learn just as much from the ones that have been a bit flat than you can from the ones that have been absolutely buzzing. I've got a question for you, actually, just before we wrap up um, on film marketing in general, and particularly this movie, Blade Runner 2049. So they did, because they could, this was released in 2017. Interestingly, uh, released worldwide pretty much within the working week, which I th thought was interesting as well. There was no long delays that we've known in the past. But I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on social media when marketing a film. And so they will make a big song and dance about the official website and the official Facebook page, usually in Instagram and so on. But for me, the challenge, and I don't have an answer really, but I'm just perplexed, you know, when you are the the production team and so on, and a movie is now literally you not know, three and a half years uh, old, how do you keep, you know, the Facebook page running? 
uh, how do you keep you know the, the content running and make it interesting or do you accept that it's uh, for a while and then you have pretty much a um, you know kind of dormant page where the, I think the last time they post anything relevant to the film was probably a year ago if not longer that's a very good question uh, I, I guess that unless there's another sequel in the planning um, I, I imagine that they'll they'll get to a point where they'll just say there is just isn't enough interest um, and whether they're checking the views on the page mm. to see how many people are still coming in it, it'll just get to the stage where everybody's been redeployed elsewhere and they're, they're not prepared to spend the money on somebody keeping the social yeah, media yeah. page updated it's another one isn't it because i mean yeah. from the you and i i suppose you know primarily from the business um world as opposed to filmmaking world the, to leave a any form, any platform that controls your brand and your reputation, essentially uh, unattended for a long time, is is a big no no. But uh, what is the answer for a film? You know, can you keep the you know the engagement going for years to come, or do you agree that there is a time where it has to stop? But then, do you need to make it uh, almost like make a formal announcement saying? You know, that is it. The last post for you know Blade Runner two thousand and forty nine. Thanks again for your support, and please come back to look at the archives, as opposed to just a post from a year and a half ago with no other form of communication. Personally, I would like them to bring it to an end and just say, just as you, as you've said, thank you. This is the end, and then it stops and it becomes an archive. Because otherwise, it's almost a like it started out as the shop window is the trailblazer for it. But then at the moment, it's almost like become a, a gravestone, hasn't it? Yeah. For the Blade Runner movie. So here you go. For you, viewers and listeners, what would you do if you were in yeah. charge of the Facebook page for Blade Runner 2049? What, what would you do with it? And still create a sense of excitement. We'd love you to hear from your thoughts on that. Well, Pascal, what a show. We've mm. talked about lots of audio stuff, and that was unexpected. Uh, I, I really feel upbeat about all the things that we talked about in, in today's episode, and I can't wait to listen to it back, and obviously can't wait to get it out there for everybody else to listen to and watch. So, guys, thank you so much once again for listening and watching Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Please do subscribe either on YouTube or on your favourite podcasting app. Leave us comments, ask us questions, leave suggestions in all the usual places. Until next time, please do go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Mm -hmm.